You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Oh, hey, guys, this is Joe Sinnott uh, speaking for the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Fantastic Four, Episode 1B, covering a period of the Fantastic Four from 1962 to 1963. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your Fantastic Four host, Eric Findlay. This is the second half of our episode that is covering the very first Fantastic Four Epic Collection. Now, that that Epic Collection collects issues 1 to 18 of the Fantastic Four, uh, the very beginnings of the Marvel Universe. And in the last episode, we only got through to issue number 10 when we got to uh, what I like to call a two-hour limit, and uh, we had to stop. And now we're going to pick up, and we're actually talking remotely today. We are social distancing our calls, which is how most of my podcasts go. But usually, because we're brothers, we're in the same city, we usually do these in person, but not today. Maybe you'll have to uh, pan our our, uh, stereo to a distance of six feet. (laughs) Okay. Uh, so today, let me see here. What, what did I say? We're going to talk about issues number 11 to 18. And this is, I, I found this is kind of a weird period for the Fantastic Four because they are introducing so many characters and so many concepts, but their rogues gallery actually isn't that great in these early days, especially when you compare it to the, like, let's say the first 20 issues of, of Amazing Spider-Man, where you have right. so many of his heavy hitters introduced one right after the other. With the Fantastic Four, it's like we have Doctor Dr. Doom, who appears multiple times. We have Namor, who appears multiple times. And then we have the Puppet Master, he appears twice. And then we have people like Miracle Man and Impossible Man and Random Aliens and the Red Ghost. And like, there's just a, it's not the same level of supervillains as Spider-Man. Did you notice that? Yeah. And I mean, some of them do grow to be uh, that kind of a level. But I think part of it has to do with um, the fact that uh, Spider-Man villains are just more simple um they have a suit or something that gives them powers and they just go and rob banks um their their ambitions aren't nearly as uh grand their their backstories aren't nearly as uh detailed they're fairly static in their in their character whereas what they're trying to establish i think in fantastic four are characters that have more depth to them or more ambition and more drive i guess that's true it's and it's I think that paradigm kind of uh, shifts when you get when the Green Goblin enters the picture for Spider-Man. Um, right. Even Craven the Hunter, I guess, is another example of one that has more depth to his character because at least he wants something more than just uh, robbing banks. Yeah, he's got like this whole um, method behind what he does. Yeah, and I wonder also if it has to do with the fact that Fantastic Four were not really set out to be superheroes in the typical superhero trope kind of way uh, from the outset. Like they were right. trying to disestablish establish the superhero genre uh, when they first started. And, su- and Spider-Man embraced the superhero tropes like right away. So maybe that has something to do with it too. Right. So how do you create a villain for this new type of non-hero? Not not an anti-hero because it's not like the Punisher or anything, but like a non 
hero, somebody who's not looking to be the heroic one. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got a poll coming up, but uh, before we get to that, there were two uh, corrections that I wanted to make from our previous uh, episode. One was that I mentioned that people should go out and read the the newest Fantastic Four 2099 one-shot because it had a really good story. I was mistaken. They should go out and read the Doom 2099 one-shot. The Fantastic Four 2099 one-shot was not that great. Um, But (laughs) but the Doom 2099 one-shot was really good. Okay. And then the second thing was just a clarification that um, uh, I wasn't sure what um, comic uh, it happened in, but I went back and checked. It was Grand Design, Fantastic Four Grand Design, uh, the second issue where Franklin, uh, old Franklin Richards, goes back in time and becomes a pirate on Blackbeard's ship. Uh, and you just reminded me, actually, something I forgot last time was that I wanted to put some some interview clips from Joe Sinnott, who was a oh, nice. longtime inker for Jack Kirby. He didn't uh, yeah. he didn't join Jack Kirby till a little bit later on in the run, but he actually inked uh, the fifth issue of Fantastic Four, which featured the the origin of Doctor Doom. So I have a, a short clip of him talking about that, and then I also have another clip of him uh, just talking about uh, working in comics and working on the Fantastic Four. So issue number 44 was the first time you were credited as an inker, but you worked on Fantastic Four before that, right? No, just on number five, because at that time I had an account at Treasure Chest magazine, and I was doing some, they liked the way I did biographies, and I was doing the life story of all people like General MacArthur and Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, uh, the Popes, and uh, uh, so when the, when he gave me number five, and I did it, he liked it so much, he called me right up, he said, Joe, whatever you do, don't leave me, because he said, I love your work over, over uh, Jack Kirby, and he said, I'm sending you number six, he sent me number six, and I did one or two panels, and my uh, script from Treasure Chest came in a 64-page story on the life of Saint of uh, Pope John the 23rd, which I had promised Treasure Chest I would do pencil and ink naturally. So I had to call Stan and tell him, Stan, I I can't do number six because I had promised Treasure Chest. I'd, I'd do their story, and it see it turns out that the the story I did for Treasure Chest is probably the hardest thing I ever did, and the best artwork I ever did. They they put it out in a, in a hardcover version, which is beautiful. In those days, we worked from a script, and I had never heard of the Fantastic Four because you know the. Oh, I'm not saying all, but most of the artists that worked for Stan and Marvel, we were freelancers. We didn't go into the office and work. Uh, we worked at home, and of course, Stan mailed the script up to me. And, and uh, so, anyway, with, with number five, he had he had mailed me uh, uh, the script. No, he didn't mail me the script. He wanted to know. I, normally, I used to do my own pencils and inks. When I started at Marvel in 1950, doing romance and westerns and horror stories or science fiction and all the, the whole genre of different books, the uh, I did my pencils first, and then I, I inked it. 
Rosen, who should be able to handle any type of comics. And like I said, during the 50s, especially, uh, at that time they were called Atlas Comics. And, of course, Dan was the editor, but the, uh, there were five and six page stories. We worked for the script, and it was a great way to work. You'd, I, I, I used to start on a Monday, and uh, by Thursday I'd, I'd pencil the five or six page story and have it inked. I would pencil a page in the morning, and I would ink it in the afternoon, and on Friday, my wife and I would go down, drive down to the city. Of course, in the, in the 50s, the city was a lot different than it is today. It was a lot more laid back and whatever. You didn't have trouble parking on the street <laughs> yeah, yeah. already. Yeah. Yeah, and Stan, of course, was in the Empire State Building at that time. And like I said, then he'd give me a script. And uh, I'd go home and I'd start it Monday morning again. And the same routine, it worked out perfectly. Because when they went to the, uh, the superheroes with the 18 pagers, it stopped all that. I, I stopped going to the city. And it was over 20 years before I made a trip to the city. And uh, it only took me two hours to go there. Because by this time they had moved to a different area. They were on Park Avenue, and then they they wound up on Madison Avenue for a long time, and uh, then they moved back to, uh, uh, I think it was Park Avenue South. But in any case, they did a lot of moving around, and uh, so after, after they went to the superheroes in 1961, I... Uh, I never went to the city again for over 20 years. Stan didn't see me for over 20 years. I talked to him on the phone, but I didn't get out of the city because with all those extra pages, I didn't want to lose that extra day, on, which was a Friday. So I stayed home and worked and mailed all my work in by mail. I used to send it... Uh, uh, not priority, but uh, back in those days, they had uh, first-class special. That's how I sent my work in. And Sam would mail me, as soon as I sent that in, Sam would mail me another script. That's how we worked back in those days. Of course, it's different now, but um, that's how we did it back in those days. So it was a great period to work. 1950s, but when 1960 came around with the superheroes, it was a whole new ball game and a whole new way of working. Okay, so we have a Twitter poll that I want to talk about. Um, we asked the question, uh, who do you ship? As in, you know, ship is the the, the, uh, the hip young kid's way of saying relationship. So uh, there are two options for you based on the content in the, the in our first episode and in this episode. Do you choose Sue and Reed or Sue and Namor? What's your choice, Eric? Um, I've always been a Sue and Reed fan. It just goes along with what I like about the Fantastic Four, about being a really close-knit family unit. Um, but also, uh, Namor 
is just too macho, which always it doesn't really rub me the right way. You know, he's he's got anger issues and that kind of thing, and I don't think that he would make a very good partner. Right. I, I agree with you. I would choose New- Sue and Reed. There just doesn't seem to be the same chemistry as Sue and Namor, especially in these right. early it, days. It's like they. It's like a purely physical uh, attraction, and it's forced to Namor. Yeah. Yeah. Just forced in the writing, and but twenty percent of the votes got uh, Sue and Namor actually, but eighty percent went to Sue and Reed. So that's not a surprise, I don't think. I would say it'd be interesting. It would create a different, very different dynamic had they done gone that way. You know, Namor would probably not attack the surface as much. There is a fantastic issue of What If. I, I can't remember the number, but it's in the very first volume of What If. And in that one, uh, in the, the critical moment when Namor is going to destroy the uh, the surface, Sue decides to go with him. And so it's the it's What If Sue marries the uh, the Submariner. And it's just fantastic because, because in this issue, Reed, uh, he's a very logical, calm, level-headed person. The only time he loses that that logic and that calmness is whenever Sue's in trouble. So uh, he actually turns into the villain in the story and goes after Namor and the entire Atlantis in very devious, underhanded ways to try and get Sue oh, back. Neat. It's very, very cool. Uh, so if you do want the question of what would happen if Sue and Namor got uh, got together, uh, check out that issue of What If. It's very cool. That sounds like a very Reed thing to do, but I could also see it being the case where Reed would not put up any sort of fight going you know, yeah, this is what would be the best for the surface world, for both of our worlds, etc., and just let her go. So he does that at first, but it, oh, okay. eats, it eats away at him over time. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got to, yeah, Very you should cool. def- definitely check that one out. Very nice. Uh, and I did a live stream of it, of my thoughts on it. If people want to uh, to hear more about it, you can check that on, on the, the Epic Marvel Podcast Facebook page, and it'll also be included in an upcoming episode of the podcast in sometime in the coming weeks. Okay, I think we should move on to our issues. Yes. We're starting with issue number 11. And issue number 11 is interesting because it has two separate stories. The first one is called A Day or A Visit with the Fantastic Four. And the second one is just called The Impossible Man. So uh, the, I guess at this point, Fantastic Four had kind of just moved to a monthly schedule because it had it was it was actually quarterly. And it became so, so popular that they decided to increase the input. And they had getting lots and lots of, of, of letters and calls and, you know, lots of mail fan mail and so many questions and sure they can answer them in the letter pages but they, they decided that they wanted to uh, have a little bit more of a creative way of explaining these things. Especially because they're getting the same questions over and over again. Exactly. So they created this story, it's like a 10 page story or something, in which they go through some of the reader questions that they have, that they've been getting. Uh, this is something that you'll see happen in a lot of the um, in a lot of the early Stan Lee stories in the 60s is promoting things like fan pages and fan clubs and and such i I mentioned this last time stan one of stanley's big things was trying to blur the line between the comic world and our world and saying that oh maybe these people do really exist Mm -hmm. which i think is part of the point of like in the opening panel people are going to get the newest fantastic four comic right and one kid is like oh i got my letter published it's very cool and and stanley is a great marketer and a great promoter and that's Mm -hmm. definitely what he's doing here by inserting these and and yes it does seem kind of forced and like a a gimmick for sure but it also you know it also is uh kind of fun it is. One thing that kind of threw me off a little bit is sometimes 
in this they're talking to each other uh, but then sometimes they're sort of addressing the fans like oh maybe i should uh, maybe the fans would like to hear this and then they start you know talking about a flashback or something <laughs> right. but then in the actual comic story there aren't any fans there present yeah, so it's, right. it's kind of odd that way but it's still very fun uh is this the first appearance of willie lumpkin this is the first appearance of mailman willie lumpkin <laughs> aka lumpy lumpy <laughs> yes this is a very important first appearance because he is one of the the more consistent uh, supporting cast of Fantastic Four uh, up until I think up into th- like through the 90s at least and then oh definitely and he still makes a couple appearances occasionally but it's always nice and then later on in this book he even saves the day so it's yeah. cool to to see him here and of course he's played by none other than Stan Lee in the second Fantastic Four movie I thought that was so fitting yep absolutely fitting it was perfect that being Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer that's right yes oh yeah because it depends technically... on whether you count the 1994 <laughs> movie or not i don't (laughs) (laughs) isn't this also the first yancey street prank i think so yeah you're right yeah 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 yeah. the thing gets a gets a box and he opens it up and gets a little boxing glove in the face classic and and he's like oh i bet it's the work of that crummy yancey street gang and that goes on to, to to be a series of um of jokes like running gag throughout the entire series yep it is it's a great relationship he has with Yancey Street, and we find out that he's got like some big ties to Yancey Street. Um, in fact, I think we talked about that. Oh, huge ties! In what episode was that that we talked yep. about it? The first Tom DeFalco episode. Um, the, what, yes, what do you call I it? Think that Mon- was it? Monster Among Us. Right. Yeah. So in, in the Mark Wade run, it's really neat because the thing comes into a whole bunch of money and he puts a lot of that back into Yancey Street, trying to clean it up, make a community center to try and get kids out of the gangs and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, I, I like the way that he, they, <laughs> I like their special relationship. Yeah. So this issue dives um, into the past of Reed and Ben. They talk about their, their lives as roommates in college. And then uh, we get a little hint of them fighting in World War II and especially with Reed working for the OSS. Uh, this is something that colors his past uh, several times in the, in various stories in the future. It's kind of an anachronistic thing now because World War II is so far removed from where we are now that they never mention that Reed these days fought in World War II. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. There is a, an interesting concept that came up in um, one of the one of the Ultimates series. Uh, the Ultimates with um, uh, like the six one six Ultimates with Blue Marvel. Yep. Um, that that time is not fixed but has these key moments that actually sort of scale through time and progress with time which would explain why oh you know so and so had their origins back in world war ii but now their origins are not in world war ii or they maybe still are but they're not old enough yeah. Well, the, I will have to see how that, if they ever want to play with that uh, that concept with Reed. If I remember correctly, and I should have looked this up, but I forgot. There were a series of miniseries about the Fantastic Four in the late 90s, I want to say. Yeah. Um, each one focusing on one of the characters and their history. And I right. believe that the one for Ben and for Reed did touch on this period a little bit. It did. The one for Ben, wasn't it with, uh, with Wolverine? Or was that, like, it was Ben and Logan and fighting together in World War II? Yeah, it might have been, yeah. Uh, Reed Richards will also make uh, will make an appearance in an issue of Sergeant Fury in a, a mm-hmm. few months from when this issue comes out. One of the early issues of Sergeant Fury, it'll, it takes place in World War II. 
um, the origin story that they recap changes just a little bit. And the, the way it changes is that the government is kind of blocking their progress. In the first one, they rush to the, they just, they just can't wait to, for the clearance, I guess, in order the to- The conditions were right to, to the launch and they didn't want to oh, have yeah. to wait for a new window. Yeah, yeah, that's all it was, is the conditions were right and they, and, uh, they knew the shielding wasn't perfect, but they're going to go for it anyway. In this one, the government is actually blocking their progress and there's no mention of the shielding at all. I mean, Ben doesn't want to do it because of the shielding. But in this recap, it's just, no, 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 I'm not a hero. I'm not interested. I just don't want to do it. Actually, that was even a tweak uh, in and of itself there. In the in, in Fantastic Four number one, he just didn't want to do it because we don't know what the cosmic rays will do. Ah, right. And then it wasn't until later that uh, they changed that to be the shielding may not hold up. Ah, yes. Which is what sort of sparks um, Reed's uh, guilt over the entire thing because... Because he forced them to go when he didn't hadn't tested out the shielding enough and wasn't sure about it. Right. Yeah. But in the or in the origin, the only thing was it's the perfect time to go. We got to go now. Yeah. So they're kind of uh, changing things even ten issues later. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. We also get um, we also get a one panel uh, explanation of how they get back from uh, the island or wherever they crash. Oh, uh, yeah. Reed Reed stretches uh, stretches up to uh, a passing jet to signal the jet to come and rescue them. Right. I guess we don't really know how they got off the island originally. No. In most in most of the origin uh, stories that we see, the last panel is uh, their hands coming together. The hands coming together, or Johnny has like set fire to the forest with his like flying around and they just all stand there watching that thinking like oh we're gonna save the world yeah <laughs> okay let's uh move on here um you want to talk about sue yeah so sue is actually quite troubled uh when reading the uh the letters page and it turns out that she's been getting a lot of email or <laughs> email they've been getting a lot of letters <laughs> Oh, such just a different a, time. Just a text message or two. That's right. Uh, she's been getting uh, quite a number of uh, letters from Fantastic Four fans saying that Sue doesn't contribute enough. She's always getting in trouble. She's the cause of a lot of the problems. Why don't you just get rid of her? Right. And this enrages both Ben and Reed. Um, and uh, so Reed quotes Abraham Lincoln to talk about uh, talking about uh, Lincoln's mother being the most important person in his life, even though, you know, she wasn't fighting in the Civil War or anything right. like that. Yeah. And that's the role that that Sue plays. But then um, and that's true, but that still doesn't change some of those aspects. But then Reed and Ben point out that she actually plays a very integral role in saving them a lot of the time. Yep. And it's her courage and bravery that that actually allows uh, her to do that. And it, so it's really interesting in uh, in this period because a lot of the time, uh, Invisible Girl is this like typical Mary Sue get captured by the villain, damsel in distress type, but she always overcomes that to become uh, to become like the the strong female role model, even in the same story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good balance. I think that they I, I think they they treat her well, especially considering the era and just the role of the the wife figure in a in the family unit in the fifties and sixties, yeah. right? Uh, yes. they, they do a good job of making her not just passive character. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that they actually addressed this very early on, even. Yeah, and I think it would be it's not like Stanley to have useless characters in his books he likes to give each character ample screen time to show off their powers and show off their abilities uh, he does this whether it's men or women so it's uh, it, it's not a surprise that Stan would want to address that he, he would have been thinking I'm sure he would have been 
thinking these people aren't paying attention. <laughs> but anyway, I think we should move on to, do you have anything else you want to say? Cause I think we should move on to the second half of this story from the first half. Just three really quick notes. Okay. Um, one is on page 266 note that this is the last page of the, uh, the, the letters section. Uh, notice that there is a change of the name on Sue's birthday cake. The first panel says, happy birthday to Sue. And then the other one says, happy birthday, Susan. Oh, uh, <laughs> right. You know, that is actually changed in the masterwork. So they both say happy birthday to Sue. Right. As I was pointing out in the last one, when they put out the masterworks editions, uh, there were some changes, like a lot of coloring changes, Yep. Um, but also some other things like this. Exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Um, also, Reed is mentioned as being the son of a millionaire in, in when he recaps, when he introduces right. himself to Ben. And um, that's never ever mentioned again. I guess they want to show how he gets all the money for his inventions and stuff. Right. Which is a good thing to, to say. Um, but uh, then later on when we meet his dad, Nathaniel Richards, yeah, he's like this time hopping hobo kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe he could have you know gone back in time and invested money and gotten you know you know millions from that. But uh, maybe he's he found, not the kind to to sort of sit down somewhere and uh, and just earn money. Maybe he found Blackbeard's treasure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention was. Um, uh, when Willie drops off the mail the first time, he says, hey, are you looking for somebody? I don't have many fancy powers, but I can wiggle my ears really good. Yep. <laughs> and uh, that's something that I always remember. Um, I believe it was on his uh, Marvel Series 1 card that that was, that, that was the little bit of trivia that uh, his superpower is that he can wiggle his ears. That's right. Okay, let's keep on going over to the next section here with the Impossible Man. Uh, first off, do you like the Impossible Man, Eric? <laughs> um, yes and no. He's he's sort of the Marvel equivalent to Mr. Mixes Pitlick. Yes, I'm pretty sure that he was created as a counter to that character. And and you can love him or you can hate him. You can love him because he's like fun and quirky. And you can hate him because he's just so, like, overpowered. How on earth could they ever stop him? It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So I have an Impossible Man trade paperback that collects pretty much all of his classic adventures all in one book. Yeah. And it's a fun book because uh, because it's just goofy the entire time. And it's not like I like that, that he just has fun with it and he turns into all these characters. But when you come across just an Impossible Man in an issue, a random issue in the middle of a collection like this, I feel like it really bogs down the book. Yeah, it stands out as being very, have a very different feel. And uh, yeah. in, in all the other books, it's sort of like, okay, we've got the problem and we're constantly taking progressive steps to solving it. And in this one, it's just everything we try isn't working. Yeah, yeah. And so I felt this issue, while it's good to have levity, and I like that they they have these kind of issues every once in a while, I just was like, oh, it doesn't, doesn't suit, I think, the book based on all of the other issues that have come before it. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a matter of writing. If you got the right writer to do it, then it could probably be really good but it's yep. tricky it is tricky i think that uh you'd have to get um let's see maybe like a chip, chip or something. <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if he has done multiple i mean uh, multiple man impossible man we should i should check that out i don't think so he'd, he'd be great at, at uh impossible oh totally man okay uh is there anything specific you want to talk about this issue i thought it was kind of a cop-out ending when they were <laughs> they solved the problem just by ignoring him and he got bored uh, and went away that is actually how you you uh, that's what i tell my children when they're fighting is like when when Milo is teasing Peter, I'm like Peter, if you just ignore him, he'll get bored of it because he's not getting the reaction he wants, and then he'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> so they do the same thing 
here. Yeah, and like it, it totally fits because really, Impossible Man is just a giant child. Yeah. Um, and that should work. However, to get the entire planet on board with that is a little far fetched. That's right, and we can definitely feel that that's far fetched in the current demographic or the current political climate that we're in right now with the coronavirus. Because yeah. we're trying to get people, everyone, to stay at home, and we're getting you know riots in the streets because people don't want to stay home. Right. <laughs> so if they're yeah. like they're getting bored, and their solution isn't just to like you know go find something to do. Yeah. So now if we're like uh, if people are saying um, you just ignore him, even if he's causing damage to your property, property or stuff, you know, just just ignore him and he'll go away. People are going to be like, no, forget that. <laughs> he's destroyed yeah. by stuff. I'm going to fight back. So, yeah, like the poor people whose yeah. helicopter he crashed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. But yeah, so I thought that was kind of a cop-out ending. Um, but then this whole issue, how are you going to resolve the issue anyway? Yeah. Uh, there's one pinup at the end of this issue with uh, Namor. That's kind of cool. Continuing the series of pinups from the last few issues that have starred the FF. I like the detail that they put into these. Um, so uh, instead of just being a pinup, they actually add in a bunch of information so there's a map of undersea earth instead of just putting like some net map on the wall they actually label it and then they're like okay well here's a fossil of a fish that uh was thought to be extinct but he found it way in the depths of of uh, the uh of the ocean right. where nobody else could travel and Here's a here's a large pearl, and here's how he got it out, and that kind of thing. Shall we move on to Fantastic Four number 12? Yes. At last, the Fantastic Four meet the Incredible Hulk. Yes. This is a pretty important issue. Not quite as important as the Thing versus Hulk issue that comes up uh, later on, um, but this is the first appearance of this guy. Now, this was actually just um, a little, a short while after the Hulk's ongoing series was cancelled because his series that started only lasted six issues and then it got canned this is the first appearance of the hulk after that series was cancelled and ah. uh this this issue is also collected in the very first incredible hulk epic collection that that first volume collects the first six issues plus all of the all of the appearances of the hulk that that pop up before he returns in his own book in tales to astonish hmm. and it actually that volume works really well all collected together even even though it's seemingly random issues slotted together because they're all still done by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and the character mm. arc of of the Hulk and all of his supporting cast carries through all of these issues uh, like as if his book never ended uh, as far as this one's concerned here uh, it's a very good balance between the Fantastic Four and their story and the Hulk and his ongoing story as well but as far as the plot is concerned the military uh, mistakes the thing for the Hulk, uh, which is weird to me because aren't these guys like world famous now by this point? Like they're winning medals and they have a movie about them. And Yeah. First of all, the Fantastic Four are world famous. Secondly, the Hulk, especially among the military, is really famous. Yeah. And like told, look for the strong guy. <laughs> Were they not told, look for the green guy? Yeah, the green guy. <laughs> exactly. I think that they would figure it out. So that I, I, it was just an excuse to get these two parties uh, interacting. I think, but uh, yeah. other than that, they Ross eventually figures this out, and it's like, no, 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 we got to team up with these guys. So the Fantastic Four team up with Ross and Banner, who who was there too, right. to uh, track down the Hulk and stop him. Now this is the first um, thing versus the Hulk, and there have been many of these over the years. And I was actually looking 
to see if anybody has done some sort of scoreboard um, to find out who has won more out of all of the times they've, encou- uh, they've encountered each other. And apparently nobody's done that. Oh, well, I guess you should do that. I now, should. Now they don't have going... all the issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll keep track of them as we go through these issues. Have we talked about a Thing versus Hulk battle already? I don't think we have. No, I don't think so. Okay, well, this is number one then. Uh, <laughs> I guess part of the problem is that these are two heroes, so nobody usually is ever really the winner of these kind of battles. Yeah. They just kind of realize that they're both on the same side and they stop fighting. And in this case, he gets shot with a beam of light and is knocked out. The, the Hulk is, rather, shot with a beam yeah. of light. And then the battle ends. So no clear winner is is recorded. So maybe yeah. keeping track of this is not I think the Hulk did have the upper hand in this one, but yes, there was no real winner. So when the, when the Fantastic Four are talking to the military... Uh, they have a, they they each say well the Hulk will be easy to take down because here's what I'm gonna do and they give a little panel of what one of them's gonna do and then Thing says here's what I'm gonna do and then Human Torch says here's what I'm gonna do and um, they all have a plan of how they're going to to take down the Hulk but when it comes to the actual battle they actually do all try to attempt what they say that they're going to attempt but none of them accomplish that it, the Hulk actually does have the upper hand for most of the battle mm-hmm. oh this is also the first appearance of the Fantastic Car Mark II right which was the uh, module design where they each have uh, their own little airplane type thing joined with the turbines in the middle. I love this design. Now in the last issue, in that uh, the visit with the Fantastic Four story, they say at the end uh, in a little editor's note that from time to time they're going to be answering listeners' questions built into the stories. This is one of the examples of that, where they they specifically kind of say, people are wondering, they say our old one looked too much like a a, a flying bathtub, so I've redesigned it. Which it did. Yeah. So they (laughs) are totally uh, answering people's questions here still through the through the pages of, of the comics uh okay so on page eight of this story here um right in the middle they're trying to they're getting ready for battle and sue this is the scene where i was saying that everybody has their plan on how they're going to capture the hulk and and, and sue says looks like as though i'll be going along for the ride i'm not sure how i can help and then ross says huh Miss Storm, a pretty young lady, can always be of help just by keeping up the men's morale. And and Reed says, that's just the way we feel about Sue General. That one panel <laughs> completely contradicts the, the point that Stan was trying to make in the last issue about Sue's involvement in the team. <laughs> like, really, it, Reed? It does and it doesn't. <laughs> like, it, it, it does because they're saying, like, okay, well, she's the one um, who, uh, hold on here. Yeah, so so Reed, when he's comparing her to like Lincoln's mother, is saying basically um, that's what she does: is she helps us keep our morale, she takes care of us um, outside of the battle, that kind of thing. But it does really undermine the message that um, that that she does rescue them and so that she is a brave and strong person. Yeah, I would have thought that especially Reed would have said something different than "Hey, General, I agree. She's just here to to keep yeah. us happy." <laughs> well, again, I think that that has to go do with um, the 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 mentality of of women, particularly wives at the time with their roles in the house. Yep. And even though um, Stan and Jack are trying to change this and push it, that is still sort of um, embedded in their lifestyle and their For culture. Sure. Yeah, and I'm sure that's how they, they interact with, that's that's the relationship they have at home with their wives and such as well. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know, I can't, I'm not going to blame them or fault them for these ideas no, no. because of because they're just reacting to the, 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 the way society worked at that time. It just seems a little off having read these both of these issues one right yeah. after the other from our perspective yeah. here in 2020. Yeah. Well, like I said, I don't think it's totally against it, but but it only supports one side of it. Yeah. I love the scene um, on page 12 of this story. 
um, when the thing and the human torch burst into uh, General <laughs> Ross's yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, secret meeting. Yeah. And the thing pulls a huge stack of books off of the shelf and then rips them up as proof of how strong he is. And uh, General Ross goes, oh, no, the big ape ruined my bound set of telephone books. <laughs> and I, like, yeah. even for the time, that's kind of a ridiculous concept. Well, I don't know. Do people bound telephone books? Like, I guess if you want them to last. And, you know, maybe it's a military thing. I don't know. Somebody out there, maybe who knows more about the military history can can let us know if uh, did the did the generals have like big bound telephone books, nicely bound telephone books of, you know, all the people that they need to contact. But this is like there's like a dozen of these books on the shelf. Yeah. I can't imagine like, I guess maybe for all of the major metropolitan areas or something or uh, I don't know, maybe you need eight, eight or 10 phone books just to cover all of New York or I, I have no idea how big the print is on these things but that just seems like an excessive amount of phone books on one It really shelf. does. <laughs> uh, the Hulk doesn't appear until page 16 of this story. 16 out of 20 pages. Uh, not, oh, not 20 pages. How many pages are in this issue? 23 pages. So he still get, he gets like a third of the book. But for being promoted so heavily on the cover, it sure takes a long time for the story to progress to the point where he's actually uh, battling them. Yeah, at least at least Bruce Banner shows up earlier. But we all know that nobody's reading the book for Bruce Banner. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, this is also during the period where um, he didn't change automatically. He had to use a gamma device to trigger the change. Yeah, he went through so many different evolutions in a very short period of time. Even in those first six issues of The Incredible Hulk, it was like, first of all, he changed at night. That happened. And then he had to use a device to change. And then he changed when he got uh, not angry, but just got excited. And uh, so all within a short period of time. So yeah, this is the time where he needed an actual button and array in order to, to, to trigger the change and he's also intelligent still when he changes yeah sort of he's not he's not mindless but he's also not bruce banner intellectual right but he still talks in full senses right and he still comes up he's like he's able to come up with strategy when he's fighting the fantastic four yeah so on page uh 22 of this story who is here to save the day uh sue all of the guys are about to be blasted by some sort of ray by this villain called the Wrecker, who happens to be a communist. But he, uh, but Sue turns invisible and knocks the gun from his hand. Saves everybody. She pretty much saves everybody in almost every issue. I think of this, of this, uh, of these ten issues we're going to talk about today. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and then at the very end of this issue, the Fantastic Four get military, uh, military commendations. Um, there's a there's a parade and and medals given out or something like that, which is you know Bruce never gets that stuff, but yeah. the Fantastic Four do. <laughs> okay, keep going to the next issue. Yep. Issue number thirteen. Okay. So issue number 13 is Fantastic Four versus the Red Ghost and his indescribable super apes, which I feel is sort of weird because the word indescribable is in some ways a description. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this is the first appearance of the Red Ghost and his super apes, as said in the title. It's also the first appearance of some very important things for Fantastic Four and for the Marvel Universe, the blue area of the moon, as well as Uatu the Watcher. Oh, yes. Interesting to note that this issue is inked by Steve Ditko. Yes. There's not too many times where you see um, a Jack Kirby Steve Ditko collaboration, but once you once you know that this is Steve Ditko, you can you can sort of see in the artwork that uh, Steve always uses fewer lines in his work and his brushstrokes are a lot different. So if you go to page two, mm-hmm. um, the group shot of them looking into the furnace or looking over the fires, it looks more like a Steve Ditko uh, Steve Ditko image or the one in the very bottom left corner 
corner where they're all looking at fire on the ground and you see like the glow and the shadows coming up um, that all of that shading is definitely a Steve Ditko kind of shading you'd see that in Doctor Strange and that kind of thing um, right it gives everything especially the thing it looked a very different look so in this uh, in this story we start with um, Reed experimenting with a new type of fuel which will help him to get to the moon yeah um, and he will be the first person to be on the moon and claim it for America um, because he has recently discovered that uh, the Soviets, the Russians, are also doing something similar. They've also gotten their hands on a meteor which would give them the same sort of, uh, the same sort of fuel and they need to beat the Russians to the moon. We then get to see uh, the origin of the Red Ghost who is a communist scientist he has trained his apes to operate the um, the spaceship so that uh, he doesn't need any other crew. And they both race for it. But the Red Ghost has an alternate plan. He doesn't just want to get to the moon. He actually wants to intentionally expose himself to a greater dose of cosmic radiation so he will be more powerful the, than the Fantastic Four. Yep, yeah, it's a pretty solid plan if you ask me. Nothing could possibly go wrong there. <laughs> but I like that idea. It's like, of course someone's going to think you know, if, if they, they did it, then I can do it too. I just didn't know right. that their origin was so public knowledge that that he knows exactly how to do it. Well, you might think so, but then, you know, they have the comic books, they have the movie. You'd think it might be mentioned in one of those things. Yes, so. Because, I mean, the kind of the idea that, that Stan Lee keeps pushing is that the comics that we read are the comics that are sold in the Marvel Universe. Right, right. So if we have a Fantastic Four number one that tells their origin story, they have a Fantastic Four number one that tells the origin story. So up until I started, I think, let me see here, the, the Fantastic Four Epic Collection first one when it came out back in 2015, I think it was, or maybe 2013, I can't remember when it was. That was kind of the first time I'd really gone through all of the early Marvel stuff um, in, in a good, like, methodical way. Right. I was reading all of these early 60s issues. And up until this point, the Red Ghost was just, he was a ghost, but he was also red because he had a red costume. I don't <laughs> think I really put two and two together that he's called the Red ghost because he's a communist <laughs> yeah and and that might be something that um that might be a mistake that they made with the character putting him in the red jumpsuit because then that does sort of take away from from the the communism aspect of it in terms of his name yeah and maybe that's what they wanted because once the cold war ended and russia was no longer you know the the villain of the world then if you want to bring back this character it's a little out of date uh so by just yeah maybe just making it making him the red ghost because he has a red costume is probably probably for the i better. don't know they keep bringing back nazis yeah I guess but nazis different. are not germans <laughs> like yeah, that's true that's yeah true. I mean, we're talking about a whole a whole country here uh I yeah. mean, I guess you could say communists are not Russians necessarily either, but um, this one is very specifically tied to Russia as a country rather than Nazis as a right. group of people. Anyway, right. I don't know. Topic for another time, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, Reed's goal is to uh, land on this area of the moon that photographs as blue. He never really says why he wants to go there, just that that's his goal. Probably because he wants to see why it's blue. Right, but he never actually says that. Yeah. <laughs> um, they build the rocket ship uh, very fast, and they land on the blue area of the moon, and they find that it has a uh, the remnants of a city, of uh, some sort of uh, civilization that isn't there anymore. Um, and he goes, oh, it looks like man isn't the first on the moon. And this blue area of the moon, I uh, did a little research on this, was created by the Skrulls. And it was inhabited and built by the Kree and another group of um, like fishy like aliens called the uh, Kotati. 
and then it was uh it's been used many times since then it's probably one of the more famous uh locations in the marvel universe because it's uh got a huge role in the phoenix saga the dark phoenix saga it's been the home to the inhumans uh, it was the location of the destiny war between kang and immortus it uh it was also where we had the death of the living tribunal and the death of the watcher in original sin and then most recently, it is the home of Summer's house, uh, which is where Cyclops and his family all live, uh, which is co- connected to Krakoa. Wow. Yeah. The moon plays a very important role. <laughs> um, and here, it's, it's just like just, a, just the Watcher's house. And so we get to learn a little bit about the Watcher, and we learn all about his vow not to get involved with things. All of his backstory is further developed uh, when, you, when you read. Um, there were Watcher backup stories, I think, in Tales to Astonish, where they talk about his, his background and then they just keep on revealing little bits and little bits of, of his uh, backstory as they go along through the years. Um, he, he's very different in this one in the fact that he actually gets involved quite a bit. He says that he can't get involved and anyone who knows anything about Uatu is that he always does get involved but mm-hmm. he gets involved more than usual here uh, because he's like teleporting people from place to, places to places and putting them in situations and it's just a, a wild ride. And Part of it, I think, is in a little bit of self-preservation. Part of the idea of the Watchers is that they can um, they can watch and record because nobody knows that they're there. Yeah. But if the major powers of the world are all fighting to get to the moon and fighting over the moon, then that's going to expose him. And so he's like, no, no, I'm just going to leave it to you guys. You're here first. You fight it out. Then nobody will have to come to the moon again. Yeah. And we're done. Yeah. I found that other than it's too bad that the Watchers appeared in this issue because I didn't care at all for the red ghost or his story. Um, I thought it was kind of a kind of dull actually, even with the And because of the breaks. Watcher, it almost is uh, extraneous. It like, is. It doesn't really matter. It, 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 you could take it out. The only reason why this is an important issue is because it, it introduces us to the Watcher and yeah. uh, it's too bad because the rest of the issue is kind of a, a drag. Spe- speaking of how little the uh, the Watcher, the, the, the red ghost actually matters, we haven't even mentioned what happens to him when he goes to the cosmic rays. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, so he gets the power to make himself intangible, kind of like um, Shadow Cat. Yep. And his three, uh, his three apes. He has a gorilla who gets really strong. Yep. He has um, an orangutan which has magnetic powers, uh, and he has a baboon who can shape baboon, right? Yeah, baboon who can shape shift. Yeah. And so then they're sort of like uh, the, the Fantastic Four analogs. That's right. They are. But then, yeah, uh, the Red Ghost seemingly has the upper hand against the Fantastic Four and the Watcher just sort of like balls them up into these little energy balls and, and, and they're kind of done. Uh, by the way, uh, on page 315 of this, it's page 12 of the story. That large panel is the scene that's recaptured in the the villains pinup gallery in Fantastic Four three fifty eight. Oh yeah, which was mentioned in our um, one of our previous episodes. That's right. Funny how <laughs> such like a uh, nothing character is like uh, become sort of one of those iconic ones, and that that like this not very interesting part of the story here ends up being one of those iconic moments. Yeah. Um, one thing that we uh, didn't say is that uh, the Watcher, after this point, says, uh, well, since humanity has reached the moon, I now have to find a new place to sit and watch from. Oh, right. And he goes off to do that. But I don't know that we ever find out where that place is. You know, as most of the time when we see where he's living, he's living on the moon. 
That's right. Maybe he decides uh, later, uh, you know, screw it. They won't be back for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he watches for a while and then, you know, nobody ever goes back to the moon. So, okay, yeah. I'll go back. And be like, if they're coming, I'll see them coming and I'll, then I'll hide. Yeah. Um, two uh, really quick things about this. One is I liked that the origin story was not part uh, of the uh, Red Ghost was not part of a flashback. Um, that's something that they've been doing quite a bit here. Right. And so I like that it's actually happening as we as the comic goes on. But then other than that, the Red Ghost was kind of nothing. The other really fun moment was when uh, the thing stuffs Reed into a beaker to get his attention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that's that's one of the the uh, only early comedic um uses of reed's powers yeah they i always wonder reed is still the same amount of mass even though he stretches right right so can you actually squeeze him into a beaker uh but depends on how dense he can get so if you know if he's squishy enough you could uh condense him and, and the thing is strong enough you could condense him into a small enough little uh, blob to fit in that it was a pretty large beaker yeah but at the same time you know uh if reed was trying he could expand and and break the glass probably right but yeah it's still a funny moment (laughs) yes okay moving on to issue number 14 once again the fantastic four face the threat of submariner and the merciless puppet master so here's another issue with namor uh the last time we saw namor he was teaming up with dr doom now he's not really sort of teaming up with puppet master I feel like through these issues, Stan really likes Namor, or maybe it's Jack, or maybe it's both. They really like Namor. They don't really know what to do with him. He's right. He's treated like an antagonist in this, in the Fantastic and, Four comics, but historically he's a protagonist. Right, but if he's the antagonist, or at the very least like a misunderstood protagonist then maybe he can't support his own story so what do you do with him where do you put him yeah and so now yeah he's and he he doesn't have his own book so we know that he's looking for his country for atlantis but we but he's just kind of wandering aimlessly and because he's not the feature character of the book we're not going to devote enough time to develop his story uh, yeah. which is uh, i think why they give him eventually give him his own book in, in uh, tales to astonish that doesn't happen for quite a few years down the road still though uh, and so in this one uh the puppet master i guess he he says in one issue on page six of this story he just says puppet master didn't die after he fell in the last issue that was the only explanation to see why he's still around he's like Mm -hmm. i just didn't die And he's coming back, and he his plan is to hypnotize the Submariner and use him to lure the Fantastic Four into a, into a trap where he will be able to destroy them all. And he uses Sue as the pawn in the middle, of course, because of Namor. Well, the other the other part that's not explained is um, he's uh, the Puppet Master is in a sanatorium. Yeah. So he's he's in a mental institution getting right. quote help for his insanity why is he um, yeah, well, and well, so like did he put himself there he must have because he's the only person maybe who just, knows he's alive <laughs> right and uh and and maybe he did as a, as a way to lay low um and you know not that he would think that he's insane um and he certainly um like when the when the doctor says you don't need to stay here you're cured he goes i know i was cured months ago um, so, uh, yeah, maybe he did check himself in. Maybe. It's very ambiguous. Uh, so at the very beginning of this issue, the Fantastic Four come back to Earth and there's a parade for them. Uh, like once, if, like all of the news reporters and everybody are there, um, they are declaring them heroes because they're the first humans to be, to go to the moon. This is another anachronistic bit of Fantastic Four history because of course man eventually does go to the moon and there is no way that today you would say that the Fantastic Four were the first people to the moon 
moon uh, because you wouldn't want to diminish the, the the contributions of the actual people who went to the moon right but at this point um but at this point I guess moon it hasn't happened yet well yeah it hasn't happened but it doesn't even seem like maybe it's like it still seems sort of fantasy that oh, that could sure. happen absolutely i'm sure most people thought it would never ever happen i find it funny that there's a a uh, fight over Mr. Fantastic by two rival fan clubs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is sort of a uh, uh, sort of uh, poking fun at Beatlemania. Right. This is exactly what Beatlemania was doing to the to the country is like running after running after the Beatles whenever they make appearances in, in cities and stealing the stuff or the things they, they touched and uh, just going generally going nuts. Um, I know that our mom has told us that this is how things were for sure. Yeah. Yep. Oh, totally. <laughs> this is when she was a kid. You know, other than the fact that Namor comes, Namor appears here. Um, this is another issue that I didn't really care for. Uh, the, the the progression of the name of Namor doesn't really happen because he spends the majority of his time entranced, so it's kind of pointless for him. Yeah, him to be here. And 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 the Puppet Master, we we see him occasionally, but he's not really a big part of the story either. Other than whatever Namor is doing is what he's telling him to do. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just he's he's so removed from this story, and Namor's not himself that this is kind of not really much of a story at all but there are a few things that are of minor importance uh one of them being that in the big mob there's a, a wrestler that challenges the thing uh-huh. and there are um a couple of hollywood people who are trying to track down sue to uh offer her a hollywood contract right and those two things there come up in the next issue right that's true yeah there is definitely more continuity issue by issue continuity happening now um that we definitely see more of uh, the beginning of the the first of the current issue referring to events in the last issue uh, and continuing the story so they're not as much of a one-off i mean there's still one-off stories there's a beginning middle and end to the tale but we get a sense of definitely get a sense of the progression of the timeline um but here we also have uh one other moment that's uh, that's important is on the last page of uh this story Sue makes her decision uh, finally that uh, she's she's going to be with Reed and not Namor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that was probably necessary. They can't keep that going forever. Another thing that I really didn't like about this issue is that um, the thing goes to say goodbye to Alicia before they go off to fight Submariner because they might not be coming back. And she goes, uh, I don't know what I'd do if, uh, you know, if I were all alone with no one to look after me. And he goes, okay, well, we'll face this together. Come with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're they're like well, we might not come back oh well we'll bring you along too but you might not come back as well <laughs> yeah and so like the only thing that um alicia does in this story is say oh i sense another presence here like the mental power of my stepfather the puppet master yeah she and, wasn't and necessary. necessary no they could have come to that conclusion themselves they yeah. didn't need her there at all yeah I think that they kind of had, they felt like they had to get a, a spot for her in the story somehow because her stepfather was involved. Yeah. But yeah, kind of pointless. Um, should we go on to number 15? Sure. Okay. Number 15 is uh, called The Mad Thinker. A lot of these titles of these issues have been quite uninspiring. Yeah. Um, I guess technically this one's The Fantastic Four Battle the Mad Thinker and His Awesome Android, but that's just not that Colon, a book-length saga. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which um, I guess is important because it means that there's no like sub-story or anything like that. I guess. I mean, they've all been book-length sagas, though, except for the Impossible Man story. I, I guess, yeah. It, it's strange. Um, so we have the Mad Thinker, again, another first appearance, Mad Thinker and uh, awesome and the, his awesome android, who's later known as Awesome Andy. 
Um, and with the Red Ghost and the and the Mad Thinker, we sort of have the beginning of the Fantastic Four B list of villains. And I mean, maybe you don't even consider the Red Ghost to be a B list villain, but like we clearly have the Doctor Doom, the Namor, the Puppet Master. Like those are the the Fantastic Four villain greats. Yeah. And then we have these other ones who are very present throughout the rest of the Fantastic Four run, but nobody really ever thinks of them. No one thinks of the thinker. Yeah, no one thinks of the thinker. <laughs> I really like the mad thinker. Yeah, he's very interesting. And it gives people, it gives writers an opportunity to craft really intricate stories. Right. And I, I don't think that the mad thinker was really very well, like his ability is explained very well, but I don't think it is laid out very well uh, in the actual implementation in the story. It, it plays off much like one of his henchmen says, oh, well, things just happen and you claim that you knew about it. <laughs> I was going to I was gonna point out that line, that exact line too, because that's how oh, that, I... Oh, that line is great. That's how I think and, of And it's totally thinker. true. It's, if, yep. if you had a guy that's like, oh, remember that thing where I just happened to get away? Yeah, I, I knew, knew that was going to happen. Gonna happen. <laughs> but... Um, and, and and so a lot of the stuff that happens in the story is put into place or set into motion by the mad thinker, but we never see it. Yeah. So it does sort of seem like a bunch of random events and how did he know these were going to happen? So it would have been nice to see a little bit more of, oh, well, I contacted these um, I contacted these Hollywood agents to talk to Sue. I uh, put these people onto asking the thing about wrestling. Mm-hmm. The, the, the opening sequence of this issue where Reed fires his uh, flare and the, the other three come to the Four Freedoms Plaza is a, it's a pretty good callback to Fantastic Four number one. Uh, I was pretty, gonna mention that as well they, because they're, some of the things are slightly different, but um, uh, like instead of shopping, for shopping for jewelry, yeah. I think. She's getting her, uh, Invisible uh, Girl is getting her hair done. Yeah. Um, but you know, Human Torch is still working on a car. Oh, sorry, no, he's not working on a car. He's, uh, he's driving his girlfriend. Yeah, it's a little bit different, but I think the main yeah. point is that uh, it's a way to show off their powers. And right, and they... uh, introduce each of them, yeah. Exactly, and if this is 14, 15 issues in now, and they still have to put this scene in every single issue, where it's like, one at a time, we have to give a good demonstration of what our powers are, mm -hmm. even though that they, uh, I mean, I guess they're still attracting new readers and, and whatever, but I mean, this is, they're two years into the book now. Yeah. Uh, this is the issue I mentioned a little while back, where Willie Lumpkin actually saves the day because mm -hmm. at the very end um the, the fantastic four are trapped they have nothing nothing to do they can't save themselves and uh the mad thinker has thought of every single conceivable possibility except he didn't factor he calls it the, it's the x factor willie lumpkin is the x factor <laughs> Reed calls him to push a button that disarms all of the, the mechanical uh, machinery in the building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it looks like a doorbell. So that, I mean, that's kind of uh, risky yep. <laughs> to have a button that's just a doorbell that will disable everything in your building. <laughs> <laughs> I know that I, whenever I see buttons, I just kind of randomly just push them. So yep. anybody could have just walked by and pushed that button. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting what they do with the, the poses for the mad thinker. He's always... Um, got his hand on his chin yeah. or like rubbing his jaw or something like that just showing that he's always thinking well and it's also i think just a, a reference to that sculpture the famous thinker oh, sculpture yeah yeah it is but um but uh, uh i mean especially in the first on the first page that is definitely the the, the sculpture there but uh just to show that 
Um, he's always thinking and working through his plans and doing these calculations. He's building computers that will do all these calculations for him as well. Um, one thing that I well that I was mentioning from the last one is that we have Ben actually getting into into wrestling and Sue actually uh, starting a career as an actress. And these are things that sort of come up from time to time as well uh, throughout the Fantastic Four's history. Uh, Sue sort of has a side job as an actress occasionally, and Ben joins the uh, Unlimited Class Wrestling Federation. Right. I like how they... Is this the, is this the issue where Sue... Oh, yeah, no, no. She, yeah, she's uh, giving autographs to a whole bunch of, of orphan children, right? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, something also is that uh, Johnny joins the circus. This is part of all of the Mad Thinker's plan to try and break up Fantastic Four. So he sends uh, two cousins. Is it cousins of Yeah, Johnny? they're cousins. One of them's That really we've never tall. heard about it One again. of them's really short. Yeah, these are two family members that they should totally bring back. <laughs> Maybe they're, uh, they've been, they're, their circus has been taken over by the circus of prime or something johnny has to help mm-hmm. him out I don't, I don't know they should totally bring him back yeah that'd be good um okay issue number 16 issue number 16 the micro world of dr doom with special guest star the amazing ant-man yay so the last time we saw dr doom um he had a plan to shrink the fantastic four out of existence and the, the uh the weapon was turned on himself and we saw him just shrinking away to nothingness Turns out that he shrunk himself into the microverse, a part of microverse called Microworld. And he basically took over there and found a way to uh, beam shrinking rays to the Fantastic Four, wherever they are, just to make it inconvenient for them and make them sort of doubt their sanity. So they turned to the expert on shrinking, Ant-Man. I think this was a pretty big plug for the Ant-Man book, which uh, they even reference on page six that, um, you know, they make a big point in saying, meet the Wasp, Ant-Man's new partner in peril, starting with issue number 44 of Tales to Astonish. Go and get those issues right now. Learn more about the Wasp. Collector items. And I think they definitely were trying to um, promote, they they stuck Ant-Man in here to promote the book, uh, which is is odd because we don't use get any sort of team-ups really in these early days of Fantastic Four. They happen very seldom. We saw... Right, um, because they themselves are the team. Well, yeah. And the only other team-up, or the only other person that we've seen so far from a different book is the Hulk, who didn't even have a book at the time. So this one comes off more as being, especially with the editorial note, as being just an emotional stunt. Mm-hmm. One thing that I looked up and I, I didn't know was that uh, the Microverse, uh, while it might not have been named as such, was uh, first mentioned in Captain America comics uh, 26 in 1943 and I didn't realize it was that old. Nice. Yeah, it's definitely been uh, well used over the years, especially with the mm-hmm. Micronaut series um, yeah. and I think the, the Micro World is later renamed Subatomica. Right. Yes. And uh, and in the movies it's called the Quantum Realm. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that if there's a third Ant-Man movie that they really start to get into that because that's sort of what they'd be hinting at with, you know, getting so small that they enter this other world when where the wasp was uh the older wasp was stuck and um where ant-man was sort of abandoned at the end of uh infinity war yeah totally yeah i think that that would be really neat to explore uh, it would open up a lot of possibilities and uh, they could do a whole bunch of spin-offs and i think that they would help to sort of establish ant-man with his own thing right well maybe the same way that uh, dr strange had the whole like astral realm with um 
uh, with Dormammu and everything. Yeah, and Thor has Asgard, and yeah, yeah Guardians have outer space. Ant-Man needs something more I mean, than just, I don't know, wherever you live, San Francisco. Right. It's like, in a world where you have the Avengers, and they, yeah, maybe they spend most of their time in New York, but they could be anywhere. Why do you need Ant-Man? What's his thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, in this issue here, Sue, it, at the very beginning here, Sue is experimenting with perfume. Or not in the beginning, sort of in the middle. What what page is this? Um, on page 11. Um, this is another scene where everybody has to show off what their powers are. This is right after right. Ben has been turned back to human. By the way, if if he just has to drink this formula every once in a while um, to revert back to Ben Grimm, why doesn't he just do this on a regular basis? Right. Like anytime he I mean, needs... it seems like Reed has the stuff to make this on the fly. On the fly. Because it's a huge um, it's a huge part of, of this story. And uh, and it's like, just uh, anytime he needs to be human, drink the thing. And even if he knows that uh, it's not going to be permanent, he still has the ability to change back and forth. Maybe just right. tastes really bad. <laughs> It does. He does say this tastes like dishwater. Yeah. Okay. So a uh, couple more points here. We, uh, there's Sue is experimenting with perfumes to hide her scent because she wants to to be hidden from dogs because dogs can still smell her even though because the invisibility doesn't hide her scent. And I thought that was kind of cool to show Sue uh, experimenting and trying trying out different theories and stuff about her powers. Yeah. Usually, usually she leaves that up to Reed. So I like that aspect. And then the Human Torch just before that is showing off to some kids, and he has a he. He, he sky writes in flame go glenville high glenville is the city that he and sue live in in the human torch stories in strange tales which they never reference in fantastic four except for this one little thing right here uh it's right by the time we meet them they've moved to quote central city and then uh and then to new york it, it's very strange how the strange tales stuff works because it's supposed to be concurrent with the fantastic four issues but um but they have secret identity glenville right and this scene clearly shows that there's no secret identity here. Yeah. Well, even the last one um, shows that there's no secret identity, really, because when they have the big press thing and then everybody comes after them, right. they all know their names. Yeah, totally. One of the big problems with this issue is I found that so much of the issue is told with flashbacks or cutaway scenes. Mm -hmm. um, there is, there, Dr. Doom has a huge scene where he explains how he got out of what, what he did. Uh, there is a... And took over... Uh... Yeah, and, and took over the, the micro world or whatever. And then there's the scene where all of the Fantastic Four are recounting the moments when they shrunk, but they were too embarrassed to say it out, out loud. Um, then there's the another scene where the, the, the princess in micro world is explaining what Doom's plan is, and it goes into this cutaway scene. It's like so much of the action is halted because they keep doing these, these talking bits of exposition. Yeah. And when I was reading this, um, I just wanted Ant-Man to jump in and, and like start doing stuff. Right. And he doesn't. And if you take out all of those like flashbacks and cutaway scenes and everything, he does. He's actually there quite quickly. But because we've got all of this stuff in the middle, then that just really uh, <laughs> yeah, right. seems to shrink his, his guest appearance. Shrink. Get it? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that was totally intentional. <laughs> One thing I also don't understand is that when they shrink, they, especially since they're using the Pym uh, elixir or whatever, yep. shouldn't they be super strong when they're really, really small like Ant-Man is? Uh, they're shrunk by Doom's Ray. They use 
PIM's growth formula to slow the shrinking. But yeah, so I don't know how that exactly works. Okay, I thought that they... Oh yeah, you're right. Take the enlarging formula to slow it down. Okay, yeah, so that's... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that probably means that it's not affecting them the same way. I was just yeah. thinking that, you know, when Ant-Man gets really small, he can still punch and knock mm-hmm. over regular-sized people. Yeah. So these I, guys should be I able find to it too. odd. I find it odd that in even in, like, the miniature world, there's still a sense of, we can shrink things smaller. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, so, you, like, you, you, yeah, so Doom takes the king and the princess and the Fantastic Four and makes them smaller than even they normally are. Yeah, well, then, and that's the, the concept that's explored in Ant-Man as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's good. I This was a, this was a, an okay issue, except for the just the pacing, I thought, was was quite off. But otherwise, yeah, if you took that it. out, then, then it'll actually be quite good. Yep. Um, one interesting thing, though, is uh, the princess is Princess Perla, and she's one of, like, Johnny's Insta crushes, <laughs> right. where he, he, like, falls madly in love with them just by seeing them and tries his hardest to impress them, and then, like, they go away and they never see each other again. And the interesting thing is that in Fantastic Four Volume 6, number 20, which just came out uh, recently... It was the last Fantastic Four issue to be released before Diamond stopped shipping. Yep. The Fantastic Four had recreated the rocket ship to go back to the um, the planet they were originally intending to go to with their first flight. And there, Johnny gets this armband on him, which identifies him as having a soulmate. And there's like this giant machine on that planet that like scans everybody and figures out who your soulmate is. And so there's this one, um, this one lady on that planet who is supposedly his, um, his soulmate. And so she comes back with them and he introduces, Johnny introduces her to Wyatt Wingfoot and Wyatt goes, oh, is this going to be another one like, and then he lists off a whole bunch of his <laughs> previous like short time girlfriends. Yeah. Um, and one of them that he mentions is Princess Perla. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's great. Okay, um, at the end of this issue, we have a one-page feature page, Fantastic Four feature page, spotlight on Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. It's very similar to the one that we talked about. At in the, 358. In, in issue number 358, yeah. Yeah. Um, any notes yeah, you almost, have here? Uh, no, al- almost exactly the same stuff. Um, how far can he stretch? And it gets it hurts when he stretches more than a couple of football fields. He can shift into like any other shape. He can go really thin. He can like deflect bullets. All that kind of stuff is what he uh, um, he said in that, or or they said about him in that other one as well. Yeah. The interesting thing is he doesn't do a lot of this stuff a lot of the time. No. It would be nice, like especially since they acknowledge this early that he can do this stuff. It would be nice to see more of that. Yeah. He is very reserved with his powers. Find. Um, I mean, that's not that's not actually true. Jack Kirby will make him stretch any chance he gets, but um, usually it's either it's just, just to arms. grab something yeah. or to tie someone up. Yeah, yeah, very seldom will he turn himself into a bicycle tire. Right. Yeah. Or even just use the stretching to deflect the bullet. We don't have a whole lot of people shooting at them. A lot of their bad guys aren't gun-based villains, so they don't have that opportunity. Or if they are, they're either gas guns or ray guns or something. Right. Non-bullets. Okay, the issue number 17 in the clutches of Doctor Doom, or on the inside it says, Defeated by Doctor Doom. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a this is a sequel to the last one. Right. Yeah, it's kind of the first time we have a real kind of a two-parter. So in the last issue, um Doctor Doom gets away by um by enlarging himself back to the uh the the outer world. Yep. 
before everybody else and then he runs away and then the rest of them all get enlarged back to their regular size and they decide that they need to track him down now yeah and this is a great uh very confusing issue actually i was like i was trying to when i write my notes i like to write down a little you know a sentence about what this issue is about so that i have something to say and i don't have to be like oh, oh yeah and this one's about uh, uh whatever and i'm like there are what about is three this? parts to the story and it just it it there's no real discernible plot except for the fact i guess that dr doom just wants to defeat the fantastic four but he it goes the story goes in so many different directions that it feels like it's very meandering almost and like it it feels like there were three or four different stories that they pulled together into one story yeah and so there are parts of it like he has these ghost thingies that follow them great that's fine but then later on it turns out that they were actually like analyzing their biology and copying their powers or something and it's like he never mentioned that before so but now that's actually a thing and yeah. Well, and then there's the part where, you know, he says that his plan is to defeat Fantastic Four, but then he, like, disarms all of the the nuclear missiles in the in the country. And it's like, now, what's going on now? Are you taking over the world? Like, I, I that, that sort of came out of the blue as well. Yeah. Um, very strange. Yeah. And he actually yeah. puts on a costume and uh, pretends to be a janitor, which is so out of character for Doctor Doom, I think, based on what we know. Yeah. I mean, he's only appeared two or three times before this, but, like, really... Um, he wouldn't stoop that low. He wouldn't stoop that low never no it just seems like an the interesting thing issue. is I, I think the janitor kind of looks like boris <laughs> right speaking of the last issue having a lot of cutaways and flashbacks this one also starts off with a flashback we get a recap of the last issue yep. which i guess as a as like a two-parter it makes sense and it's not very long but it's a recap of uh what happened in the last issue we get a couple extra things thrown in ma- namely that uh princess perla made johnny a knight right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which o- has no him. bearing on the entire story at all. No. And it's like, the, what, the what other funny we... thing is that uh, the the Human Torch makes a crack about, uh, we could sure use a Joker like him on our co- in our combo, right, Reed? And um, Ant-Man, uh, Hank Pym Ant-Man, doesn't join the Fantastic Four. But in Fantastic Four 384, Scott Lang Ant-Man does. Right. So that's the period where uh, Reed is, is thought to be dead. And so they bring him on as the science expert. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Ben turns back again. Uh, the formula that we that they established in the previous issue is a very big plot point in this issue here. Again, going like if you need to turn into human, he can do it anytime he wants to. And I think if you look at this whole epic collection, the first 18 issues, he turns back probably like eight times. Yeah. Out of these 18 issues, <laughs> like. And then almost never again. Yeah. Um. I sure hope. I mean, it, I think it's probably a pretty painful process. It looks like to turn back Maybe, into yeah. human and back to thing again. So, but he endures it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I didn't really understand the purpose of these lighter than air robots that like float around with them no well he they, um they were supposed to doom says something like my uh, first phase the, the end of my first phase was to humiliate the fantastic four by making these things that float above them and that they can't defeat so everybody kind of laughs at them also they're kind of goofy looking right but they just are sort of a minor annoyance like i guess i guess it causes uh reed to lose his honorary doctorate yeah right <laughs> not that he not, not that he needs another one but other than that it's it's just sort of like a inconvenience to them yeah uh, the, this whole issue is just kind of weird uh, the best part i liked was the classic death traps where they all have to go into separate rooms and get trapped with a different thing right yeah so <laughs> that was fun 
Yeah, those are always nice. Yep. And that just it gives them a new way to show their their powers. But in the end, the person who saves the day is Invisible Woman or Invisible Girl. Yep. She is the one who confronts Doom face to face and takes care of him. Um, and she uses her judo because she knows judo. Yeah, actually, because Reed had established earlier in a previous issue that he was a judo expert and he taught Sue some judo moves. Yep. And this, there is a great episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show. I mentioned the Dick Van Dyke Show a couple times on the podcast now, but there are so many episodes of that. So we're, we've been watching it for a long time now where mm. um, Laura takes down um, a guy that's hitting on her in a bar by using a judo move and everyone thinks she's so much tougher than Rob because uh, Rob doesn't know any judo. <laughs> so he tries to learn judo. It's a really funny episode. But so many of those things, I think judo was the thing to learn back in the 60s. Um, but I think every time that Dr. Doom has come about now, Sue has been the one to actually take him down. Yeah, I think so, because he underestimates her for whatever reason. Yeah. When will you learn, Doom? This whole thing about Doom <laughs> taking over the microverse and taking uh, uh, taking over the micro world or whatever it's called uh, definitely seems like a foreshadow to when he takes control of Latveria. Mm-hmm. So one really odd thing about this uh, issue is on the 19th page of this issue, page 414, uh, top center, we have a picture of Doom with his like mask mouth like open. Right, yeah, that's and, weird. And some and sometimes, especially in these earlier issues, we see some facial expressions from Dr. Doom's mask, but rarely do you actually see the mouth open. Yeah, I, I think that it doesn't. It doesn't have a hinge for a, like a jaw hinge. No, and I mean, like if you look on the next page, you see a frowning Doom mask, which is kind of odd, but... Uh, <laughs> right. Right, because, but I mean, I guess they want to be able to show some sort of expression. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't it really even make sense to have the, the, the open mouth there. No, it doesn't. Okay, last um, issue. Or yeah. do you have more to say here? Oh, I was just going to say that um, uh, we see the back of the President of the United States, and um, they never say who it is, but you can tell from the hairline yep. <laughs> and from the time, as well as the mention of um, uh, Caroline, that this is JFK. Right, of course. Okay, moving on to the last issue here, number 18. The uh, Super Scroll. Yeah, the fa the fabulous Fantastic Four learned that a scroll walks among us. I think that this is only the second appearance of the Skrulls, right? Uh, yes. Because we haven't seen them since Fantastic Four number two. And I didn't realize that Super Scroll kind of came into the picture pretty much right away. Neither did I. Second appearance of the Skrulls. Super Scroll is a, um, a, a scroll that had some scientific experiments uh, conducted on him to give him the powers of the Fantastic Four. They don't really explain how that happened, um, but now he is able to stretch. He's able to flame on. He's able to turn invisible and he has super strength mm -hmm. as well as his shape-shifting powers. Powers. So he's right. He's kind of a pretty good five and one five and one deal here. And they make a specific point of mentioning that in addition to having all of their powers, he has them to a greater extent. Yeah, he can lift like a hundred tons, whereas Ben can only lift about what? What did they say? Five tons. Five tons. Oh, one more thing. They also gave him an extra special secret power. <laughs> yeah, which is revealed at the end of this issue, which yeah. does nothing. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> Turns out he has a power of hypnotism. I just don't understand uh, why they needed to do that. It's like the character wasn't interesting enough already with just powers of the four. Yeah, it would have been it would have been nicer if um, they had maybe 
thought to do something more with the invisibility. Like, this would be a great time to introduce the invisible fields. Yeah, that wasn't re- really on their radar or way of thinking No, all, totally not. Yeah. No. But uh, had they thought of it, that would have been a good place to introduce it. Yeah. So one thing that this, this issue does is it establishes the existence of extraterrestrials in with the general public. Because up until mm-hmm. this point, anytime they battle aliens, pretty much no one knows about it. And the alien or whoever flies back to, to the planet and everything's good. But the Skrull, the Super Skrull, when he comes down to Earth, firmly establishes his dominance on the planet and everybody sees him and they're like, oh, I never thought if aliens would land it that it would be like this and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. um, the people are, are understanding that there are people, there there's life out there. This issue is pretty much just one big battle. There's yeah. not, there's like a little, there's little setup at the beginning with the Skrulls. The Super Skrull comes, they fight for pretty much 20 pages in a row until Reed at the very end comes up with a device that's going to stop him and they have one final little battle which isn't even a battle and sue good for sue plants the device on him and uh, and the day is saved it's it's very interesting like it, it's refreshing because fantastic four and i've said this before fantastic four is not really the team or the comic book that's about the big battle i can't remember if i've mentioned it on the podcast before but the 2005 movie a lot of people complained how the battle with doom was only like five minutes long and i was saying i'm fine with that because with the fantastic four it's all about the journey to getting there and coming up with this plan that they can enact and because they work so well as a team they can they can finish it off pretty quickly um but occasionally it's good and fun to have this kind of thing where you know there's this big battle scene yeah that's right it's it and people come for the fights that's what the superhero comic books are especially known for and yeah um, especially if you're targeting in you know the eight to ten or twelve year old age demographic, you're gonna want to have to put those in. Um, you're okay, you're okay to do Talking Heads for a whole twenty two pages if you're Brian Michael Bendez, but <laughs> <laughs> right, maybe not everybody is. Uh, anything else you want to say about this issue? Um, yeah, I find it odd that the uh, the power behind the Super Scroll is like energy being beamed from his planet. Right. Um, I I don't I haven't read the next appearance of the Super Scroll, so I don't know how they sort of explain that but the reason he's able to be defeated is because they cut him off from his uh his super fantastic four powers yeah that is interesting how it's dependent on some sort of energy flow yeah and that's that's not the case anytime after this as far as i know yeah um i guess we'll find out also um i find it really interesting that here's the first uh, opportunity that we see uh to have uh, of scrolls on their home planet and we see some people in in other like whatever their cultural garment is, and that has actually stuck around. Like if you look at um, the the clothing in uh, Secret Invasion, it's very similar to this style here right. of what these scrolls are wearing, and that's well, kind of yeah. neat. It's a I I would say that's because it's a Kirby design, and people love right. to make sure that they stay true to the Kirbyness of the Marvel universe. Yeah, but I mean, we have these two guys. Who knows? Maybe it's just these two guys that dress that way. But no, <laughs> like they take it as this is how all scrolls dress, and and that's really cool. I think. Yeah. The is. last thing that I wanted to mention is um, the scrolls say that they are from, and as a math teacher, this really pains me. The fifth quadrant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can I can suspend my belief for all of the weird science stuff that they do because you know they didn't know better at the time like reed's model of dna it was just random but uh but really like it's right there in the word that quadrant means four so how is there a fifth quadrant the unknown quadrant (laughs) uh anyway um i really like this issue it was it was fun yep 
Yeah. Um, overall, oh, actually, let's let's move on to uh, um, at the back of this book. There are some bonus features. You want to take us through the bonus features? Sure. Uh, the first one is Stan Lee's original typewritten synopsis for Fantastic, Fantastic Four number one. And we've already actually talked about this because that was also included in Fantastic Four 358. Which is um, a 30th anniversary special. Yeah. So if you want to hear more about our thoughts on that, you can go listen to that uh, podcast. Uh, what was that one titled? That was called um, The Monster Among Us. Right. Um, then we have a couple of um, alternate covers, which is kind of neat. So we have an alternate cover of Fantastic Four number one, an early version um, it's often referred to as the, quote, missing man cover for the policeman who was added in the final version. Um, other than that, it looks very similar. There's an alternate cover to Fantastic Four, a sketch cover for Fantastic Four number two, where they're not wearing their, their uh, uniforms. And an alternate unused cover for Fantastic Four number three with the Miracle Man. Then we have um, a page of a bunch of costume emblem designs by Stan Lee. Um, I'm really glad he went with the four because the rest of them just kind of look silly. <laughs> yeah. Although, I can't remember where, but I think that that combined 4F, um, particularly the line one, not the block one, has been used before. Maybe, uh, maybe to... some alternate version of the... No, yeah, yeah, in like an alternate universe or something like that. I'm trying to remember where, but I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, we have the original art page from page 11 of Fantastic Four number 3. Um, as well as uh, page six of Fantastic Four number five, um, a uh, a sketch cover of Fantastic Four eleven, page one of Fantastic Four number fourteen, uh, the sketch for the 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 line art for uh, the Fantastic Four Mister Fantastic pinup, and then interestingly enough, we have an unused page of art. Mm-hmm. And we don't actually know where this is from. And it says that here in the footnote. Um, but it's most likely, they believe, from either issue 17 or 23, based on the appearance of Dr. Doom's robots. Um, and then after it was pulled from the comic, then they used it as a demo page for a new inker. But we don't know who that inker is either. Yeah, that's cool. I like that they invented yeah. it. I'm uh, sorry. I like that they included it. And I wonder, like, I'm amazed that this stuff survives all of these years. Oh, I know. Like, just a, a test page that was not even finished, and it's still around. Like, and it was pulled from the book. Like, you would have just thrown that away. Yeah, totally. Um, it, It's just, this stuff survives, and those those alternate covers and stuff. Like, back in the 60s, did they, I'm sure they were thinking that they'd never have to have any purpose for them um, 70 years down the road or whatever. But here yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know where it would fit into issue 17, because it's kidnapping Sue, and maybe it was left out because they really changed the entire story. Yeah, they kidnapped um, Alicia instead. But uh, yeah, finally at the very end, there are a couple of um, house ads. So the ads that would have been included in other issues, uh, other comics, um, for Fantastic Four, ones that would have included been included in um, Amazing Adult Fantasy um, or uh, in in Ant Man or or you know those kinds of other. Uh, comics. Nice. So these first 18 issues of Fantastic Four, if you could sum it up, what would you say? How, what's your what's your review? They're largely quite good, quite interesting. Um, a lot of uh, landmark stuff, especially if you are a current reader, um, seeing how some of these uh, just sort of tossed in elements have really come to be uh, important and um, develop. They've, they've been developed over the years. But there are a couple that are quite difficult to get through. Um, just because they're the the pacing's not right. Yeah, I, I think that's good a good assessment. 
I found that the last, like, I, I really liked a lot of the first half of this book. And then the second half of the book seemed like even though they were introducing new concepts and stuff, they were, I don't know if they were rushed for time because they'd switched to monthly schedule and Jack Kirby's doing however many books, like 15,000 books at the same time right now. <laughs> um, and it's just not as polished as the first half of this book. Yeah, or maybe, um, you know, when they went to, um, when they went to create the Fantastic Four, they had a few ideas already. And then that lasted them the first 10 issues or so. And then they're struggling to come up with new ideas quickly. I know I've read these issues. So I know that the Fantastic Four volume two of the Epic Collections um, can, kind of continues on this. It, it's, it doesn't really start to really pick up until we get to the third Epic Collection. And that's when the coming of Galactus story is. So right. we have a little bit more to endure until kind of the, the, the Kirby run really starts ramping up big time. Um, but right. I think that we can continue on through through to the next issue, to the next uh, volume, and kind of tackle those issues sooner than later? Or do you want to loop back to do uh, the last volume of Moon Knight next? Uh, let's do some Moon Knight. Okay, yeah, we might as well finish that one up with the last volume of the series, and that'll be fun. Uh, and then, yeah, and then we'll come back and do some more early Fantastic Four. Uh, or maybe we'll maybe we'll jump back and do some more Steve Englehart Fantastic Four. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we'll have to figure that out. But I mean, either of those, uh, the Steve Englehart stuff is, is stuff that hasn't really been recollected since yep uh, so that'd be good and uh the the second volume are ones that don't get reprinted very often either so either way yeah i think that both would be both would be excellent conversations yep well thanks everybody for listening you can find us on facebook twitter instagram all of that stuff check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash thunderquack we're part of the thunderquack podcast network and uh yeah otherwise have a safe and enjoyable time at home doing whatever you guys are doing and don't forget to read plenty of comic books yep goodbye <laughs> <laughs>